contractors aren't attorneys and most people aren't attorneys. <laughs> so you're creating a legally binding contract between two people that are not attorneys. Somebody pulled off a two-page you know, contract online and others use a 10 or 20-page contract that they you know, created with their attorney. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 153 with Paul Dashevsky and John Grishpole. The home you build or buy may be the single biggest purchase you'll ever make. That's why choosing the right builder is such a consequential decision. But since we'll only ever need to do this once or twice in our lives, it's very easy to be taken advantage of or miss red flags before we plunk down our life savings on a tiny home. My guests this week, Paul Dashevsky and John Grishpole, started the company Great Builds to connect homeowners with reliable, pre-vetted contractors. In the interview, I'll ask them the tough questions about what to look for in a contractor, and they share so many gems. Don't miss it. Also, Paul and John created a downloadable checklist, How to Choose a Contractor, and they're making it available to listeners of the show. So make sure to head over to the show notes page for this episode, thetinyhouse.net slash 153 to download that free How to Choose a Contractor checklist. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 153 for the checklist. Is this the year that you're finally going to embark on your dream of living tiny? If you're serious about building or buying a tiny house in 2021, then I'd like to personally invite you to my online community where you can connect with other tiny housers, get your specific questions answered, and get support on your journey. Tiny House Engage brings together tiny house hopefuls and DIYers to share plans and resources, learn from each other's challenges and mistakes, and celebrate our successes so that we can feel less alone while we build faster, safer, smarter, cheaper homes, embrace the tiny house lifestyle. Whether you're a tiny house dreamer who's still figuring out all the systems, plans, and everything you need to go into your tiny house, or if you're actively building, Tiny House Engage has the resources for you. There are professional contractors in the community here to answer your questions about plumbing, electricity, ventilation, carpentry, and there's also plenty of interaction between members. If you need some encouragement or just need to know how someone else solved a particular problem, you'll get those answers in Tiny House Engage. I'm also very active in the community, answering questions and keeping an eye on things. So if you want to interact with me on a daily basis, this is a great place to do it. To learn more and register for Tiny House Engage, go to thetinyhouse.net slash engage. Registration is open Tuesday, March 16th, through the following Tuesday, or when we get 20 new members, whichever comes first. I can't wait to meet you in Tiny House Engage, and I know you'll love your new Tiny House community. All right, I am here with Paul Dashevsky and John Grishpole. Between the two, they have decades of home construction and renovation experience, and after seeing the not-so-glamorous side of the industry, they decided to create Great Builds, a completely free service that simplifies the contractor search by directly connecting homeowners with reliable, thoroughly vetted contractors and providing ongoing support, ongoing project support from the initial call to the finished remodel. Paul and John, welcome to the show. Hey, Ethan, good to be with you. Hey, thanks for having us. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to have you on the show. Um, so, you know, tiny home building is a bit of like the Wild West right now. There's um, explosive demand. A lot of people who want to build or buy tiny houses and uh, regulations are starting to catch up uh, with with the tiny house building process. But, um, you know, all in all, there are a lot of great builders out there, but also some some bad ones. And so um, a question that I see all the time from people in my online community, Tiny House Engage and elsewhere is, you know, what what should I look for when I'm talking to a builder, when I'm when I'm hiring a builder? And um, I was curious if we could just start like at the very beginning, maybe um, what are your tips like before you even pick up the phone or write an email to a contractor or a builder? You know, is there anything that that you know, what, what should that person have like ready before they contact, even contact anyone? Well, let, let me back you up All right. even a little bit further than that. And then, yeah, and then, please. And then John will walk you through, you know, kind of the tip. But if you sort of think about it, here's the reason we started Great Build. If you sort of think about the, the, the process to find a contract, very different than the search to find anything, let's say online, a laptop or Parasoc, whatever, obviously very different. And so, and we started great builds, sort of realized that there is no great way to do this. Really, the way that people have been doing this since the Stone Ages is, hey, ask a friend, you know, what kind of contractor do you recommend? Who, you know, who did you use that you like? Who built your cave, right? So now <laughs> right. I use that same person. So that's, that's been working forever. But then option number two kind of sucks. Option number two is you get online through all the review sites, all the Yelps and all the various sites and hope that the reviews are true, which, you know, these days, you know, and look at pretty pictures and all the contractors rated four or five stars. And that process is not great. That's what the yellow pages was like 20, 30 years ago. I'm, I'm probably dating myself here. Right. And, um, and so there's no really good way, you know, way option number one is great. Option number two kind of sucks. So we thought, like, how do you really figure out a way to find a great contractor if you, uh, if you don't know someone personally or if you don't have a friend uh, that knows somebody? Because the problem is that, you know, here where we work in Southern California, in L.A. County alone, one county, Ethan, we have 20,000 licensed general contractors. Okay, so again, tons to choose from, right? And the other statistic we found that is amazing, and I, I bet you'd be surprised by this, is that 50% of people who work with a contractor, who hire a contractor, and there was a survey done about this, have a bad experience with it. So of those 20,000, you pick 10,000, you're gonna have a good experience, you pick the other 10,000, you're gonna have a terrible experience. So we said, there's gotta be a better way. And that's why we started Great Builds and I'll let John kind of continue the conversation about what it means to then find a good contractor and how we seek out good contractors. Sure. So as, as Paul said, uh, we, always, we agree with it. The number one best way to find a good contractor is from referral. Someone you know, either in the industry or with relevant experience that has done a project like this before. If my neighbor just finished the kitchen remodel, I talked to them, they came in at a good price and they were happy with the experience. My search is over. I've probably already found a good fit. But if I'm not fortunate enough to have the, just the right neighbor next door or a coworker or a real estate agent who can refer me to a good contractor, I'm left with the many, many options. 
on all the other sites and yellow pages and otherwise. So what we do to kind of screen for a good contractor are all the same things that anyone can be doing. Uh, it just takes time and it takes effort and it takes attention. And so it's not so much finding a good contractor, but more so screening out the bad contractor. So the easy things like verifying they have an active license, ensuring that they have workers, compensation, and general liability insurance. And then, like Paul mentioned, you can't always trust the reviews you read online, but if you read enough of them on a number of different sites, you can usually get a good enough idea of are these full of it, are these guys full of it, or is there potential here? So those are kind of a few of the first few high-level things that we look for just from the very get-go of is this contractor worth having a meeting with? Are they licensed? Are they insured? Is their public reputation good enough? And do they seem good enough from face value to spend time for a meeting? And I would just add to that, you know, that it can be hard to find honest reviews because, you know, the people who write reviews online are either the ones that are super, super happy and maybe it's like, you know, Joe Schmo's cousin um, or they're the people who are like super duper pissed. Um, and there's there's not often much in the middle of like, yeah, they were fine. You know, I wish they had answered my emails a little faster, but it was fine. Right. And so so that's why. Those three first cursory steps are part one, part A, yeah. right? So we take a 10-step process. We think everybody should try to do as many things as possible. So then the next steps are you meet with them personally. And oftentimes, sometimes the, the contractor sends a salesperson to meet with you and give you an estimate. That's not who you want to know. You want to meet, interview, speak to the owner, because that's who you're going to deal with if you have problems. So that's, that's item number who is a, is, a, is, a, uh, is a management interview. You got to call references. That's where a lot of people fall down is, oh, it's such a headache. But if you can have conversations with at least three, four, five prior customers who aren't the contractor's cousins or friends from, you know, Temple or whatever, and they literally, they specifically had a really good experience and they could say um, unequivocally, I never knew this guy, had a great experience with this person or, or him or her. Uh, and I would definitely recommend them. And then you got to ask them pointed questions like, that's great. You loved him. If there was one thing they could do better, people will answer that question. Well, it was great, but it was a little delayed. That's, that's another item. Another item then is um, we always run a background check. Not everybody can do that, but we always run a background check on that person. Um, then um, you, what am I missing, John? Uh, uh, we, we, we make them sign a code of conduct. You know, you, you could check their contract yeah. with an attorney. You can just keep going and going and going. And the idea is if after all those steps, there are no red flags, it's a good sign they've gotten through your gauntlet and they're probably one of the good guys. Oh, and the whole time that you're working with them, have they been responsive, right? You know, did yeah. they respond to you? Did it take them a week to get you a bit? So all these things, usually the good ones sort of come out the bottom of the funnel if you do your yeah. Um, so uh, just sorry even to interrupt. Um, it's funny because uh, when it comes to this whole contractor world, we kind of call ourselves sometimes a matchmaker for contractors. 
And that first meeting with the contractor is really a first date. So while they may have their best foot forward on that first meeting, as Paul mentioned, I think it's really important to note that from that very first phone call or form you fill out on their website, all the way through getting your estimate, it's ever more important to pay attention to how the communication is, how they treat you as a human being, and ensure yeah. that their communication style and format fits your style as well. Yeah. Um, so this is probably a really basic question, but um, John, I think you mentioned just making sure that the contractor has a, a license and that they have liability insurance. And I wonder if you could speak to what the benefits, why you want, why do you want your contractor to have a license? Because, you know, they could probably build it a lot cheaper if they didn't have a license. And what about this liability insurance? Why does that affect me, the customer? Sure. So let me touch on the license first. In order to get a contractor's license, the process is a little bit different uh, between state to state, but at least here in California, and I figure it's similar across every other state, uh-huh. you have to take a test. You have to pass a series of uh, a course and, and credibility just to prove that you know the regulations, you know what's safe to be done, and how to take on these different types of projects, how to do these large construction project. And just from a credibility perspective, it's really, really important that, especially when taking on a large scale construction project like building a tiny home, you wanna work with someone who's experienced, who has enough, a strong enough background that they're credible and capable of doing a significant project like this, something that can jeopardize other parts of your home or Mm -hmm. cause very significant repercussions you want to make sure you're working with someone who has the credibility and thus the license behind them that says, yes, I am experienced. I know what I'm doing. Here's my paper to prove it. And then kind of on the back end, having a license, and this goes along with having insurance, is if anything goes wrong. General liability insurance, workers' compensation insurance, and also to some degree having a license essentially says, if anything goes wrong, you have these options. So if someone gets hurt or if there's property damage during any construction project, that workers' compensation insurance and or that general liability insurance will cover that. And let's say you're working with a contractor and they're trying to rip you off or they disappear from your project or, God forbid, anything else even worse happens. If they don't have a license, and you paid them some significant amount of money, you're out of luck. There's there's very few options you have because for all you know, you don't have this guy's real name or his real contact information. He could have fleed. But if he has a license, if he has insurance, then there are these higher powers that you can reach out to that can take action, that you do have recourse with. And if they're not licensed, and if they don't have insurance, you typically don't have these same recourse options. And and not to mention even that it's illegal for these guys to do big projects without a license. So you're you're outside right. of the law if you're hiring someone, you know, to build your tiny house or ADU without a license. You're you're taking a big risk. Right. And it, it's interesting because I don't know, you know, in the tiny house world, a lot of the the tiny houses themselves don't always meet residential code and they're not necessarily always legal to live in, especially the the houses on on wheels, the movable tiny house. But I, I, my assumption is if you work with a contractor that has a license, they still have to 
uphold their license when they build your tiny house. They still have to follow certain things. I mean, is that a correct assumption? Look, the ones on wheels I can't speak to, right? But if you uh. want to build something permanent, let's say in your backyard, you know, like an accessory dwelling unit is what we see a lot of, right? Um, you need a licensed contractor to pull a permit. You know, unless you want to do all this construction illegally, which is a huge risk, because if your neighbor then calls the city, they'll red tag you, they'll make you knock it down. But if you want to do it legally, you need a, a real contractor to pull a permit. You need a, a real set of plans. You're going to have inspectors come through many, many times during the project. And at the end of it, you want to get a COO, a certificate of occupancy, which tells the world that you built this thing and it's legal to live in and it's added value to your property and it's legal for you to rent out all these numbers of reasons you want to have it totally legitimate. You've spent hundreds sure. of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars. You want it legitimate so that if you sell your, when you sell your property, you want to rent it, all, all these reasons you, you want it to, you know, be, be legit. And Ethan, I can, I can answer you a little bit differently. Okay. Um, I, I will avoid using specifics as to not throw anyone under the bus. Um, but to answer your question, yes. Um, if you choose to go under the law and take the likely faster and cheaper way out, it's still advisable to work with a licensed contractor. And while they may not positive about this, maybe they take a pledge when they get their license that they will only do legal work. I do know contractors who, if it's the client's wishes, who are willing to skirt the system, avoid permits, and, and do it for cheaper and, and faster. Like, but I do say it's still advisable to work with a licensed contractor, or at very least someone who does have that right experience, because at the end of the day, it comes down to safety. You want to make sure you're working with someone who can create a space that will be safe for you and your family and your loved ones to use. And not that not having a license means that that contractor is not good, but they don't necessarily have the credibility behind them to show that, yes, they are capable of doing this safely and doing it properly. And even if we choose to do it without permits, a licensed contractor knows how to do it right so that it's a safe and comfortable thing. So, um, Paul, I love that you shared that tip, you know, when you interview reference you know what what's one thing they could have done better that's an awesome question i was curious what what are your tips for what's your advice for when when you actually do pick up the phone and start interviewing the contractors specifically rather than the the referrals you know how can you avoid kind of getting a sales pitch or getting sold to and kind of actually suss out whether this is a person that you want to work yeah, um, I'll back up and sort of tell you that um, we've sort of witnessed, and I think people should be aware, because if you're not in the industry, I don't, I don't think it's obvious, that there's probably sort of three types of general contractors, which is what we're talking about out there. There's, I call them the small, medium-sized, and large. And it's important to suss out who you're dealing with. Um, you know, the guy with the ads on TV and the big rap trucks and all the marketing and radio ads, that's a big contractor, clearly. There's no question about it. Um, the guy that's a one-man shop that works out, out of the back of his truck, that's, that's a small-time guy. And then sort of all the other folks in the middle, sort of kind of middle America, if you will, the hard work and general contractors, they may work out of their home. Their wives might help them. They have a crew of 5, 10, 15, whatever it is. 
that's everybody mm -hmm. else in a minute. Um, so what what will happen uh, oftentimes is um, is is they're priced accordingly. The the big guys are going to be expensive. They have to pay for their marketing budget. Small yeah. guys are going to be cheap, but they're sort of a, a one man operation, um, and that can be an issue, right? You know, for the obvious reason that you know one man can't can't do a job nearly as fast as you know a crew. So we're always trying to steer people to that to, to that middle tranche. You know, uh, they may not be the cheapest, they're not going to be the most expensive, but they're also you know salt of the earth kind of nice size crew and so on and so forth. And so I think, um, you know, you want to be asking them things like, um, you know, obviously you can get on the phone and what's the budget? Hey, I want to build a ADU or a tiny house that's this, this size. Have you done that before? Oh, you have, you just finished one last week. Great. Um, and, and what was the budget for that? How much, how much did that cost? Um, how big is your crew? You know, they're not going to, they're going to lie. They'll say one or two, or they'll say I have 50 or they'll say I have, you know, I have 10 guys and mm -hmm. so on. So that that's important to figure out because that'll tell you what kind of uh, uh, contractor you're dealing with. Um, you know, you could ask them if they prefer sort of being involved with all the hands-on stuff like selecting materials, or they want you to do that. And that will tell you, you know, are they kind of a hands-on person? Do they have someone to help with with design? Does he want to? Do they want to join you when you go to the material stores, or do they want you to handle all that and just kind of give them a list? Um, you know, did the, how you want to ask them about their management, meaning, uh, are you going to assign a specific project manager to my project is the, in a medium sized contractor, it's usually the owner that will be there once, twice, three times a week. Is that what you want? Well, then you should ask. On the other hand, a larger company will say, well, we'll assign a project manager to your site. You're never going to meet the owner of the, uh, of, of the company. Uh -huh. So that's, that's important. Um, you know, and then you talk about. The, the proposal specifically, are, to your point, is it time and materials? Is it is it is it a max bid? Are you going to include any of the material costs in the bid? So, make a list of your questions. I think we maybe even have a blog or some resources that people can find on our website. But just make this laundry list of things that are important to you. And, and in essence, it almost doesn't matter what you ask. I mean, those things are important for you to suss out. To your point. But after you have a half an hour conversation with someone, you'll just get a feel for them, right? You'll just get a sense of, of, of who they are. And if you're just talking to a salesperson or some, one of their reps, then you're not talking to the right person because that, yeah. that's not going to be helpful. You're not going to get a sense of the personality of the company. They're just trying to sell you and then they're going to move on. You're never going to see them again. They're off to sell the next person. So that's important to know who is it that you're speaking with. Yeah. You know, it's, I'm, I'm, hearing what you're saying and kind of reflecting and thinking, yeah, there are like the bigger tiny house companies and then there are the medium sized ones. And then there are the small ones where it's just, you know, one guy building, building one house at a time. And, and I was, I was also thinking just that, you know, when it comes to budget and cost, I feel like if, if your biggest priority as a customer is the lowest cost, then you've kind of already lost or you've, you've, um, you're setting yourself up for potential, um, disappointment and heartache. And, you know, what happens in the tiny house world, particularly for houses on wheels, you know, people come into it with an idea, you know, maybe they've seen an, a kind of clickbaity article about, you know, couple builds amazing dream tiny home for $20,000 or something. 
and and they say, okay, like my budget is thirty thousand dollars, and then they're going to tiny house builders, and you know the lowest they're hearing for a, a professionally built tiny house is sixty, and then someone comes in and says, yeah, I can do it for forty, and they're like, great, you're the person, but you know that then then you've lost if everybody else is coming in at one price there's very very true there's an issue that we warn people about uh which is you know you always want to get multiple bids to your point but mm-hmm. if it's if it's 60 65 and 40 you know you, you gotta think twice because look i don't want to disparage contractors that it's, it's, it's who we work with every single day you know of the year um but there is a breed of contractors out there that will bid you the low bid, right? Give you the low bid to your point uh, to get the job with the, with knowing full well, they're, they're, they're not making a lot of money with the full intention of making up for it with change orders, right? Making and, and asking you for extras along the way and finding issues. And then you're going to find that you're going to end up paying 10,000 more or whatever. And you're just going to, and you're going to do it. Um, you're going to be disheartened and, 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 and frustrated. Uh, because you could have chosen a, a, a different contractor, spent a little bit more without all the heartache. Got it. I'd like to tell you a little more about Tiny House Engage. Tiny House Engage members are also able to listen live as I record these podcasts and interviews, ask questions of our guests. So if you're a big fan of the show, Tiny House Engage is a great way to get an inside look at the Tiny House Lifestyle podcast Get access to episodes weeks or even months before they go live on the feed. To learn more and register for Tiny House Engage, go to thetinyhouse.net slash engage. Registration is open Tuesday, March 16th through the following Tuesday or when we get 20 new members, whichever comes first. I can't wait to meet you in Tiny House Engage and I know you'll love your new Tiny House community. Well, maybe um, you, you kind of breeze through them there. And I want to make sure to, to try to break them down a little bit. Like, could you go through some of the different types of contracts, you know, time and materials, or you said max bid and, or cost plus, or yeah. What are the, what are some different common types of contracts that people work with? You know, they're mostly, at least around here, you know, you have time and material and cost plus, uh, but to, to be frank, the average, most of the contractors we see work off of a fixed cost contract, which is okay. just purely a laundry list of the things they're going to do. And in, in theory, in a perfect world, all the materials that they're going to provide uh, and, a, and, a, and a fixed cost at the bottom of it. And that's really best, I think, for the average consumer. The average mm-hmm. consumer can't know time and materials like that, that's not their expertise. Like. How long does it take and what are the materials cost? So what I recommend is, you know, fixed price, which is sort of a, a, a max, you know, a GMAX sort of a, a contract, which writes out the, 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 the scope. The problem, the problem comes in that every contractor knows, and I think the average homeowner should know this uh, when they start working with people, uh, that rough materials are included. Lumber is included nails are included drywall is included right there's things that are obvious the contractor that are included but then finished materials may or may not be included and so that's when you start looking at bids and start thinking 
de- determining that they're not apples to apples because one will say, oh, the flooring, well, yeah, I'll give you a, um, included in my bid is flooring materials up to $3 per square foot, right? So you choose, that's an allowance, but I'll give you up to $3. Another contract may have no flooring material included. So you have to now compare the two and say, well, wait a minute, this one has more in it. So if it's more expensive, that makes sense because they're actually including flooring. And, and the same goes for tile, faucets, shower heads, um, lights, uh, switch. It, it just, the list goes sort of on and on. Um, so you have to, you sort of have to, that's, that's where the, the lack of clarity comes in is apples to apples in terms of what they do and then apples to apples in terms of um, what, they, what they include. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. And just, you know, all of what you're saying, in my opinion, can be applied to working with a professional tiny house builder as well. Um, so, you know, for anyone listening saying, well, they're talking about somebody building, a, you know, a, a brand new single family home or something like that. And this is all, you know, this all applies to tiny houses. Sometimes the language might be a little bit different, but... Um, you know, this is great, great stuff. Yeah, Ethan, I mean, we always tell our customers, like, whether it's a tiny house or a full-size house, it's a house. This is no joke. I'm pretty sure your tiny house, you need electricity. I'm pretty sure you need sewer and water. I'm pretty sure you need, you know, whether it's heating or air conditioning, you need drywall, you need insulation, you need, a, you know, if it's not on wheels, you need a foundation. If you're going to live in it, it needs all the comforts of home. So you're really talking about all the same things that go into a regular house for the most part. Yeah. So, um, a lot of people don't like to read through the fine print and don't like to read through the contract. So, you know, any tips on, you know, unless, you know, of course, if they're going to work with, with great builds, maybe they don't have to worry about this quite as much, but you know, tips for reading through the contract and just understanding it. This is this is a hard one. I'll, I'll be completely frank with you. You you ask some really good questions, and this is this is a good one too. Um, <laughs> contractors aren't attorneys, and most people aren't attorneys. <laughs> so you're creating a legally binding contract between two people that are not attorneys. And from our experience, no two contractors have the same contract. Somebody pulled off a two-page you know contract online. And others use a 10 or 20 page contract that they, you know, created with their attorney. And it's really hard for homeowners. This is really, really hard. You know, the obvious thing to do if you're spending a lot of money is have an attorney review it. I mean, that's obvious. Short of that, if you don't want to spend the money, you kind of just have to do your best to make sure it passes the, the, the smell test. We actually do have a, um, an article on our blog called 10 key points to a construction contract that okay. we had written by some attorney friends of ours. So if people want to really kind of hone in and look for things that they want to, that, that should be in a contract, I suggest looking at that blog, but you know, insurance and performance bonds and payment schedules and indemnities and warranties and arbitration clauses. I mean, it's kind of beyond. Yeah the average person, but, but, but that article, and we could, we could give you a link to that is a start, but to be frank, this is hard. There is no really easy answer to that one. Yeah. And I'll throw a link to that, um, 
and the other blog that you mentioned, they'll, they'll both be linked on the show notes page, which will be at thetinyhouse.net slash 153. This is, this will be episode 153. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, I mean, it's good advice and it is hard. I mean, reading contracts is hard and, um, you know, your eyes can easily glaze over. That's for sure. Um, I, I was curious, um, if you can speak to like warranties at all and, and being like how long a contractor kind of guarantees their workmanship, the success of that building, what's common in the industry? Um, what's common is a one year warranty because, you know, it's expected that the average part the average labor that it takes to, to to put something in should should last a year really good contractors will come back way after that yeah sort of from the goodness of their own hearts but you should expect to see one year and you know we, we educate homeowners or that that, that that are building anything essentially is nothing's going to last forever. You, you sort of can't expect that five years down the road, yeah. that faucet's going to work. You know, things break, houses move, things change. You shower mm. in your shower. So that tile's going to crack. It wasn't the contractor's fault of that five years hence, because there's movement, there's earthquake, there's water damage, whatever. But a, a one-year warranty, you should expect them to, to come back. Okay. Um, this is actually a question from, from the chat, which is a great question. Um, are there contracts that have a schedule of payment linked to specific work done along the way? You want to take that, John? Yeah. Yeah, there is. And I would say in almost any case, there should be. That's yeah. typically how any contractor should be paid. At, here in California, at least, it's illegal to pay more than 10% or the lesser of 10% or $1,000 as an initial down payment. It's, it's illegal to charge any more than that. Wow. The rest of the work is paid when work is completed. Sometimes payment is necessary to source materials, and things like that, just to make the lead time more efficient. But yes, every contract should have a payment schedule and there should be payment milestones based on when work is completed. Payment released upon demolition, payment released upon framing, and so on and such forth. Got it. Yeah. So hopefully nobody's in the situation where their contractor is hitting them up for money to buy lumber. Um, but if you are in that situation, you might consider, uh, running away before you get too much further. Right. And and it's actually, uh, hark on that a little bit further to add to what Paul was discussing earlier about the contract. That is one part of the contract that is very important to look through and make sure you're comfortable. And if necessary, clarify any details about it with the contractor. For example, if too much is loaded at the front end at the beginning of the project, some clients of ours are or can be concerned about there not being enough stake in the game later on in the project for the contractor to continue working. Yeah. Which uh, I'll say is not a not a common concern for a good contractor, but certainly for someone who's been burned by a bad contractor before, I, of course, get the hesitation. 
So just making sure that it's even and fair dispersals throughout the project, and that even with punch lift at the very end of the project, that there is some portion, maybe five, at most 10%, typically, depending on the size of the project, is withheld until you can walk through with your contractor and confirm and verify that everything is exactly where you want it, the way that it's supposed to be, and then you hand over that final check. Nice. Yeah, that's that's great advice. And uh, I'll, I said it before, I'll say it again. All this applies to tiny, to tiny house builds. Um, I'm curious, and this might not be something that, that many of your clients or you have to deal with, but it is somewhat common in, in the movable tiny house world, which is that you might end up picking a builder that is not in your location. That is, you know, maybe even in a different state, you know, you're working with a specific tiny house builder that you really like. Um, any tips for how to manage that process when you're not able to be there physically and like see the progress and actually inspect what's happening on your build? That's a, that's a tough one, Ethan. I mean, you know, it's, um, you want to try to be there. You want someone to try to be there. You know, the worst case scenario is we always tell people that they need to inspect along the way, right? Because once everything's done, it's so much harder to fix anything and everything. So if you, you know, if you're a good client and you're walking the job, whether it's a tiny house or a bigger build weekly, and you're telling the contractor, like, you know, I noticed this or I noticed that, you know, let's talk about it. I'm not saying, you know, maybe, maybe it's okay that it's imperfect. Uh, maybe I'm a perfectionist, but, but a good contractor might say, no problem. Let's, 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 let's tweak it. That's reasonable. But if, if you tell them that at the end of the project, that's just not fair to anybody. They may have done a poor job, but you, you should have, you should have noticed it. So you got to be looking at it. It's just, you know, so different than buying a pair of shoes or, or anything yeah. else, you, you got to be there. Somebody's got to be there. Right. Yeah. So uh, let me just add to that. I guess there's a few different scenarios in which this can be the case. Let's say I live in California, but I hired a tiny home builder in Oregon to build me a tiny home for a property I own in Oregon. In that scenario, even though I can't be there uh, due to these COVID times, I can't fly to Portland every week, find, find a way around it. It's, it's the 21st century video chat on a weekly basis, right? Have the contractor send you photos of work progress. Do whatever you can to at least have a regular cadence with whomever you hire that you can evaluate their quality of work, ensure that everything is in line with what you were looking to do, and so that you're not caught by surprise at the end of it and end up making a big mistake. And then another scenario, I don't know if this is what you're referring to, but I'll touch on it. Let's say you're working with a tiny home builder based in Arizona, and they're fabricating it in a factory, and they're going to ship it to my property here in California. Mm -hmm. If that's the case, those folks in Arizona certainly know exactly what they're doing at building their unit. They're good at that. That's what they do. They may or may not know all the rules and regulations in your state, in your county, in your city. So if you are working with someone who will be making a unit, sometimes a tiny home or an ADU, and bringing it to your local city, 
find someone local that can manage that process for you. Typically an architect or a contractor, um, typically a contractor will need to do finish work nonetheless or site prep work to set up utilities. So make sure that you find someone local who is familiar with the rules, with the regulations, so that hopefully it's being fabricated correctly, but more importantly, that once it's done with fabrication, you have someone who can do it according to the rules and the laws here in California, wherever the property is located, just to avoid any mishaps or headaches down the road. Got it. I was curious uh, just to to talk briefly about about the company Great Builds. Um, you know, how did you get the idea for it, and um, how's it been going so far? Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of where we started. Even it's uh, it was the the thought. You know, I, I my background, I was I was flipping homes for about ten years here in Southern California, and the the worst part about flipping homes was finding contractors. So that's why we're spending so much time on you know, the discussion of choosing contractors. And I thought, man, I'm a professional or in theory, I'm a professional. It still sucks to find good contractors. How does the average person do it? And I started talking to John about that. And what we came up with is what we were talking about. The fact that there's one good way to do it and other ways, you know, they're terrible. So we started kind of interviewing people and people would want to tell us, uh, friends and, and colleagues would want to tell us about their nightmare remodel. Or if not that, they would say, yeah, you, I need a good contractor. You tell me where to find a good one. And so we thought, can we create a company that was like getting a contractor recommendation from a trusted friend? Like, can, can we do that? So we said that's, that's sort of the, the, the basis we started with is if we can find a way to do that and, and get people one of those 50% good contractors, then they're just much more likely to have a positive, you know, renovation experience. And that was the goal. Don't just be a, a website where we list thousands and thousands of contractors. That's not helpful. That already exists. But if a, if a homeowner can call us and say, here's what I want. Here's my budget. Here's what I need. Here's my questions. And we could spend 20 minutes, half an hour with them on the phone. Say, great. Let me, let me tell you what I know. And let me tell you my experience. Let me tell you what you should budget. And so on and so forth. And then at the end of that, match them up with three contractors in our network that are the best fit for them in all those various facets and then set them up to, to, to meet with them and give them the opportunity to, to pick one if, if they like. Then we thought that was sort of a full service offering that was much more hands-on and much more like, like maybe a friend or, or a family member might do. Nice. I like it. We need this in the tiny house world. Well, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you that you feel like the tiny house or ADU audience should should know or learn about? I mean, you asked some really, you know, great questions. Um, the only thing in my notes that uh, uh, we kind of thought was interesting um, is, you know, we get a lot of requests for folks that want to build ADUs uh, or tiny houses. And so we've been tracking what people are, why, why people are building them. So out here specifically in, in Southern California. And so what I thought was okay. interesting was the statistics we have. Um, out here at least, about 50% of those folks that are calling us are wanting to build them as rentals. 
that they want to, um, to build them on their property as an investment mm-hmm. um, to rent out. So that's kind of interesting. And then the other 50% are sort of broken down into 10% tranches, Ethan. So another 10%, uh, about 10% are they're wanting them to work from home. Makes sense, especially these days. Um, another 10% are retirees who are actually going to move out of their home once they build the ADU and move into the backyard, right? To rent, mm-hmm. to rent their, their big home. Uh, about another 10% are doing it for family. So maybe they're moving a, a mom or a dad or, or a college student, you know, a kid in, into their ADU. Yeah. Um, about 10 are using it uh, for uh, sort of a guest house, their own use. And then another 10 are sort of for their own um, uses like a gym or a man cave or a she shed, kind of their own uh, uh, entertainment type, type uses. So I thought that was sort of interesting anecdotally what we're saying. Yeah. Nice. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I would have, I would have guessed about that, you know, that, that about half are interested in, in a rental income and then, you know, kind of a smattering of other ones. So thanks, thanks for sharing and thanks for tracking that. Um, thanks. Yeah. I've got, I've got one more for you. So, um, Paul's already discussed it. We've already beat it, beat it to death, but we started this company because there's, a lot of bad contractors out there and there's too many nightmare renovations and horror stories that we've heard. Mm-hmm. And like Paul mentioned, part of it's because there's just bad contractors that don't have the ethics and are willing to take advantage of homeowners, steal their money, whatever. But another major piece of it is the knowledge imbalance. These contractors that we're interviewing, that we're considering, that we're working with, that we're deciding to hire, they've been in business for five, 10, 20 years. They know the industry in and out mm-hmm. and for better and worse because of it, they know how to play the game. Whereas the average homeowner who only takes on a major project like this once every three to five years, like everything we've talked about today, may not know the right questions to ask, may not even know where to start in evaluating these contractors. And I say that because we started this business primarily with general contractors because while it's ever more important to find a great plumber because my sink is leaking, worst case scenario, it's a couple hundred dollars down the drain uh, and, and they'll be out of your house in a day. Whereas with a major project like this, it's weeks, if not months on end, and that's where it's ever more important to find the right fit for So we found beyond what we do of matching clients with the right contractors, we've realized that a lot more of the service that is ever more important than that is answering the questions and kind of bridging, bridging the gap between the average homeowner with minimal renovation experience and the contractor who knows way too much and they're powerful because of it. So I say that because, um, and I hope this doesn't bite me in the butt, uh, currently we only have the resources to serve Southern California. We only have a network of contractors here in Southern California. But our vision, our mission as an organization is truly to ensure that homeowners can make confident decisions finding contractors. Our entire screening process is not top secret. It's public on our website. Mm-hmm. Folks call us all the time with general questions and ideas, and they've already hired a contractor, but they're not sure about this or that. And just as much as I enjoy helping clients find good contractors, I love helping people get out of sticky situations and ensuring that they're confident with their hiring decision. 
So for any of your listeners, or if there's anyone that does have a general question about construction or what to look for in a contractor, please check out our website. Um, give us a call. Our phone number is plastered all over our website. It's hard to miss. I would love to chat and point you in the right direction, give you some general guidance. And if there is anything specific that we can do to help, that's really what we're looking for. Awesome. Well, John Grishpole and Paul Dashevsky, thank you so much for, for being guests on the show today. This was great. Thank you, Ethan. Ethan, thanks for having us. Thank you so much to Paul Dashevsky and John Grishpole of Great Builds for being guests on the show today. Also, don't forget to head over to thetinyhouse.net slash 153 for the show notes where you can download the free checklist, How to Choose a Contractor, that Paul and John have created uh, just for listeners of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. So again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 153. Also, don't forget to get on the wait list for Tiny House Engage. Doors are opening this coming Tuesday, March 16th, and we'll stay open until we get 20 new members or just the week, whichever comes first. You can learn more about that at thetinyhouse.net slash engage. All right, I have been your host. I am still your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.